0: at science.org/news scroll down and click subscribe on the right side that's science.org/news click
1: subscribe Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 17th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Evan McLean about the role of oxytocin in mediating the relationship between people and dogs. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Today's stories all involve organisms that have interesting ways of making their living off the bodies of other species, dead or alive. First, vampire bats survive by feeding on blood, but pinpointing their favorite source of the nourishing nectar has eluded scientists until now. Perhaps that's because to do so, they needed to look at DNA in bat poop. This sounds like a job for a certain kind of scientist, Dave.
2: (laughs) Well, somebody who certainly doesn't mind combing bat poop from DNA. The problem with bats is because so much of their food is actually blood. We can't really look... In their feces for pieces or bones of animals to figure out what their diet is, we actually have to analyze the DNA of their feces to figure out actually what they've been eating. And nobody's really been (laughs) willing to do that, uh, at least on this scale until now.
1: So how did they even get the bat done?
2: Well, the researchers actually spent 47 nights in 18 villages in the Amazon. And these are places where vampire bats are common. They captured 157 bats to collect their fecal samples. And then they did DNA analysis on those samples.
1: And what did they find?
2: Well, they found that about 60% of the samples contained chicken DNA. Okay which isn't terribly surprising because there's a lot of chickens in these villages. What was surprising is about 30% of the samples contained pig DNA. Now, pigs are much less common in these villages. And when researchers controlled for the relative availability of the animals in these villages, they figured out that even though pig DNA was only showing up in about 30% of the fecal samples, these pigs are actually really a favored food for these vampire bats.
1: Hmm. Any explanation for this preference for pigs over chickens?
2: Well, the researchers have a couple of ideas. One, that the bat's saliva is better at liquefying mammal blood than bird blood. Also, pigs have a very high concentration of red blood cells. And if you're a bloodsucker, that's something that's important to you.
1: No, we know that vampire bats go after cows and other species, so this probably depends a bit on location, but are they thinking that if they tested this in other places, they might go after mammals over birds, for instance?
2: Yeah, I think it would depend on the relative availability. The bats were about seven times more likely to feed on pigs, and chance would predict, which would suggest if you've got a lot more pigs around you're really going to have these bats feasting primarily on pigs to the exclusion of the other animals.
1: Okay. And this was the Amazon and there are forests around the villages where they collected the samples. Didn't they find wild animal DNA in the bat's feces as well?
2: The researchers actually did look at that. And what they found was that they were mostly finding DNA from domestic animals, which is what you would expect because domestic animals tend to be caged or in small enclosures. That makes them much easier victims for the bats.
1: That makes sense. So I have to ask, did they find any human DNA in there?
2: Yeah, surprising the researchers didn't find any evidence of human DNA in the bat feces, which suggests that we are not a preferred target for these animals.
1: Well, that's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Next, when paleontologists discover ancient fossils, the extinct dinosaur, sea creature, or bird usually gets the most press. But taking a closer look at the fossils can tell us about the evolutionary history of much smaller and less charismatic creatures. Researchers made CT scans of 100-million-year-old plesiosaur fossils. What did they reveal, Dave?
2: Well, they revealed that an unusual kind of worm, which is called the osadax, or also the bone-eating worm or the bone worm that was found about a decade ago, has been around a lot longer than scientists thought. This is a worm that was first identified uh, about 10 years ago, feasting on a very deeply submerged whale carcass off the coast of California. And it turns out these worms actually burrow into the bones to extract fat and other nutrients. And they leave behind these really, really tiny, very unusually shaped holes in the bones as sort of their calling card that they've been there.
1: Okay, so do they think these were the same worms and that they were doing the same thing to these
2: ancient fossils? That's been the question, how long have these worms been around? Because whales have not been around for a super long period of time. And when we're talking about plesiosaurs, or ichthyosaurs or some other ancient marine reptiles that lived as long as 100 million years ago. And the question is, did we have these bone worms back then? What the researchers did was they actually took some scans of some bones they had from some of these creatures, and they found that, indeed, the bones showed very similar drill holes to what we see in modern whale carcasses, indicating that these osidax worms have been around for at least 60 million years and perhaps a lot longer than that.
1: Okay, so what might these worms have been doing between the time that plesiosaurs went extinct and whales evolved?
2: That's a great question. And one idea is that they were feeding on the sunken remains of other large creatures, including sea turtles. Sea turtles have actually been around for a very long time. They survived the dino-killing apocalypse, which also killed these large marine reptiles. But their carcasses were large enough that the worms should be able to find them and make a meal out of them.
1: Interesting. And our last story takes us from decaying bones to decaying teeth. The plaque that causes your teeth to decay is really a biofilm made up of bacteria and sugars. But regular antibacterial drugs are pretty much useless against plaque because our saliva rinses them right out of our mouths. But now, researchers are working on a tiny solution to this problem. Tell me about it, Dave.
2: What they're working on, Suzanne, is plaque-busting nanoparticles. And these nanoparticles are essentially these tiny spheres. And on the outside, they're positively charged, which is really important because that allows them to attach to the negatively charged sites on both plaque biofilms and tooth enamel, which gets over the problem you alluded to earlier about these things getting washed away, so they actually will stick to teeth. But on the inside of these spheres, the researchers filled it with a antibacterial drug known as Farnesol. And what Farnesol does is it actually kills all of these bacteria on teeth that release acid and can cause tooth decay.
1: Okay. So they've tested these nanoparticles in rats' teeth. And what did they find?
2: Well, they found that uh, they did twice daily applications of these nanoparticles. It reduced the severity and the number of cavities on rodent teeth. I didn't know rodents got cavities, but but (laughs) now we do. um, And apparently this is a good way to fight them.
1: Okay. So they've tested this in rats with poor dental hygiene. What about people?
2: They haven't tested these in people yet. There are a couple of concerns. First of all, we have a lot of good bacteria in our mouths as well well, a lot of good bacteria that live on our tongues. And there is some concern that we don't want to be killing off the good bacteria along with the bad bacteria. There's also the concern that we would ostensibly swallow these nanoparticles, and it's a little unclear what they would be doing once they get past our mouth. But one sort of interesting thing is that, you know, when we talk about things like biofilms, we're not just talking about plaque on teeth. We're also talking about bad bacterial biofilms that form on things like orthopedic implants or catheters, which can cause infections. And so the idea is if you have something that can fight plaque, it may be able to fight some of these other problems in the same way.
1: Well, that sounds promising. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about a surprising aspect of dark matter. Also a story about the oldest known stone tools ever discovered. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about whether U.S. women face bias when it comes to winning federal research grants. Also a story about why a second Ebola vaccine trial may be too little, too late. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
1: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, our oldest and arguably our most mutually beneficial relationship with a non-human animal has been with the domestic dog. Over millennia, they've helped shape human societies, and we've shaped them. In recent years, scientists have begun to investigate the physiological mechanisms behind the powerful bond between people and dogs. Evan McLean discusses the latest findings in this week's Science. Give me a brief history of the relationship between dogs and humans,
3: Evan. The history of dogs' relationships with humans is something that we actually don't have a great handle on at this point. And there are lots of different theories about how, where, and why humans and dogs began to associate with one another. So what we do know is that dogs are descended from gray wolves. So gray wolves are the evolutionary ancestor of the dog. But we don't know where dogs were first domesticated and when this happened. So there's some genetic evidence that suggests that dogs were first domesticated somewhere around 30,000 years ago. But if we look at the archaeological record, really the best evidence goes back only about half that long. Certainly by around 10,000 years ago, we were living and interacting with dogs in some interesting ways, which is evidenced through things like burials of humans and dogs together. And probably one of the first steps in dog domestication was actually when the dogs initiated and not humans. So it was probably wolves that began to scavenge at the outskirts of human settlements. And soon after wolves had moved into that niche, there may have been selection for tamer and less fearful individuals who were willing to get closer and closer to human settlements to exploit this niche. And after there were populations of dogs like this that were living on the outskirts of human settlements, probably humans did some things to incorporate dogs further into our society and from that point we've obviously done lots through artificial selection to create a tremendous diversity of breeds that have different appearances and functions and behaviors. And It's really probably only in the last couple of thousand years or so that we've begun to keep dogs as pets similarly to what we do today. And actually a lot of the variation that we see in modern dog breeds is a product of the Victorian era. So probably for much of the history of humans and dogs, dogs were really used in very specific working roles and then it was these Victorian dog fancier that created this proliferation of the diversity of breeds that we see today. So in many ways, when we look around the world at dogs today, we're seeing something that in no way resembles what much of the history of humans and dogs look like.
1: So dogs evolved from wolves. What traits do we see in dogs that just aren't seen in wolves at all?
3: A lot of the dog-wolf differences probably evolved very early on before we had the diversification of dog breeds that we see today. And probably a lot of these differences are the result of proto-dogs essentially domesticating themselves. So in this process, basically what happened is that dogs began to be able to relate to humans in meaningful social ways. They began to treat us as social partners, and they became attuned to our social cues in the same ways that young children are and in ways that doesn't require a huge amount of socialization to occur. So for example, when dogs are presented with something like an impossible task, they quickly turn to look to humans for help, because they know that we're potential social partners who will help them get the things that they need. And this is something that wolves don't do. so if wolves have an impossible task they basically persist at this on their own and they don't have this tendency to look for human help. And similarly when it comes to things like gesture following we know that if you very intensively socialize wolves and you get them very accustomed to working with humans they can follow human gestures to some extent but it doesn't seem to come nearly as readily as it does to dogs.
1: Interesting. So how do dogs interact with people in ways that set them apart from any other animal?
3: I think one of the most important differences is that dogs really seem to relate to humans almost as if we were members members of the same species. So they're incredibly comfortable around us and they engage in social behaviors like eye contact and they even pick up on bits of human language. But probably what's most interesting about dogs, at least from a cognitive perspective, and where dogs have really earned an interesting reputation in the field of comparative psychology, is in their ability to use human gestural communication. So these are things that for humans seem to be incredibly simple, like when we use a pointing gesture to show somebody something, or when we use our eyes to convey a social signal in some way. But what many scientists have found actually working with our closest primate relatives, chimpanzees, bonobos, other great apes, is that these other apes don't really seem to understand these basic communicative signals, and this is something where there's a lot of evidence that dogs are really prolific in their use of human gestural communication. Even when scientists test young puppies, puppies that are six to eight weeks old, and at this point they've barely opened their eyes, they seem to be fairly sensitive to a variety of different kinds of gestural communication. So uh, it's something that emerges very early and doesn't really seem to rely on intensive exposure to human culture.
1: Let's talk now about how bonds form between dogs and people on a biological level. We know that the hormone oxytocin plays an important role in human bonding, but what's really interesting is that a few studies have found that oxytocin is also implicated in the bond between humans and dogs. What's been found?
3: That's right. So there have been three or four studies now showing that affiliative or friendly kinds of interactions between humans and dogs can lead to increases in oxytocin both in dogs and in people. And there's also some evidence to suggest that there's a kind of dose-response relationship in this process where the effect on oxytocin in dogs depends partially on the way that humans interact with dogs. And conversely, there's some work showing that the effect on humans depends very much on the dog's behavior toward the person. So there's this backdrop of research that indicates that oxytocin-related processes may play an important role in the bonds between humans and dogs.
1: Interesting. And this week, Nagasawa and her colleagues have a paper in Science that further elaborates on this role of oxytocin in the human dog bond via eye contact. What do they find, Evan?
3: So, the first experiment in this paper builds on the basic foundation that I just described. And what the authors did was to observe dog owners interacting with their dogs for 30-minute periods. And they measured oxytocin in both the dogs and humans' urine before and after this interaction. So, the first major finding is that there was a lot of natural variation in how much time dogs spent gazing at their owners. And you could create these sort of natural divides into groups of dogs that spent a lot of time gazing at their owners and groups of dogs that spent very little time doing this. And it was only in the group of dogs that spent a lot of time gazing at their owners where the owners themselves had an increase in oxytocin following the interaction. And what's really cool is that their dogs, in return, also had a spike in oxytocin, which was correlated with what happened in the person. So there was this sort of bi-directional process where the oxytocin changes in dogs and humans moved in parallel with one another. So in a nutshell, the amount of eye gaze between humans and dogs was a good predictor of the change in oxytocin in both individuals. Wow,
1: that's interesting. I know with my dog, it seems like every moment she's awake, she's got her eyes on me. She pays really close attention to my every move. So I wonder (laughs) how that translates in terms of oxytocin in either of us.
3: That's right. You should come visit the lab sometime.
1: All right, cool. And the researchers also wanted to see if giving oxytocin to dogs would have any effect on their owners. How did that experiment turn out?
3: So there have been previous studies looking at the effects of administering oxytocin in dogs. And what the same group of authors have found is that if you give dogs oxytocin, what you see is basically increased social behavior and social contact, not only between dogs and humans, but also between dogs and other dogs. So this research falls on this backdrop of knowing that when you give dogs oxytocin, it has some predictable changes on their social behavior. So what the authors found in this study is that when dogs were given oxytocin, it specifically increased the amount of gaze that they directed toward their owner. But what was an interesting aspect of this result is that they only found this effect in female dogs, even though there were male dogs tested in the experiment. So the major finding here is that when female dogs were given oxytocin, they tended to look longer at their owners. And as a result of this, their owners experienced a larger increase in oxytocin than when their dogs were treated with saline.
1: That's so interesting that uh, administering oxytocin in a dog could have that much effect on an owner. I wonder why it was only females.
3: It's a good question. And we're still learning a lot about oxytocin administration studies, even in humans. And there have been differences in the effect of oxytocin administered in human men and women. I don't think that we completely understand why this is, but it's not necessarily inconsistent with the human literature that there might be a sex difference in dogs as
1: well. Now, one of the cool things about this study is that they didn't stop with dogs. They actually looked at people who had raised wolves as pups as well. And they got very different results, didn't they?
3: They did. So what they found is that if you took wolves, even wolves that were reared by humans in similar ways that we might rear dogs, there was no relationship between oxytocin and either the wolves or the wolf owners. There was no relationship between changes in oxytocin and the amount of gaze that the two share. So it seems that wolves, even when they're reared by humans, don't use eye contact in the same ways that dogs do and that we don't see these same neuroendocrine correlates in their interactions with humans. But I think one thing that's probably worth noting is that the wolf sample size is considerably smaller than that for the dogs. And so it might have just simply been harder to find this effect in wolves for that reason. And in fact, if you look at the dog data, it's only a subset of dogs where we see the effect. So in some ways, I think the finding with wolves is something that needs further investigation.
1: Interesting. Evan, what do you make of these findings with respect to the evolution of dogs and the way in which we interact with dogs now?
3: Well, there are a couple different schools of thought about the way that humans relate to dogs. And the first one is that our relationships with dogs in many ways resemble the structure of wolf packs. And in this sort of scenario, humans are the alpha in the family. And this is where a lot of people come from when they talk about things like asserting dominance to keep your dog in line. It's this idea that you are essentially the alpha wolf and your dog is a, a beta member in your pack. But a totally different way to think about this is that our relationships with dogs are very much like parent child relationships, so human parent child relationships. And there have been some fun studies showing that, indeed, we respond to our dogs quite a bit like human children. So, I think one of my favorite ones is a recent brain imaging study that looked at mothers who were being shown pictures of either their own child or somebody else's child and their own dog or somebody else's dog. And what the researchers found in this study is that there were brain networks in mothers that responded very similarly when they saw pictures of their own child or their own dog, but they didn't get this response when mothers were looking at somebody else's child or somebody else's dog. So one fun evolutionary scenario might be that dogs found a way to basically hijack these parenting type responses. And over time, dogs may have taken on more and more sort of childlike and juvenile characteristics to further and further embed themselves into this parent-child kind of framework. Probably a lot of the cues that dogs provide that make us treat them like children are in no means done intentionally on behalf of the dogs. And they look at us and behave like children. I think it's an natural part of dog biology. But because those cues resemble cues that we get from human children, we tend to respond to them in that same way as if they were children. There are people that certainly think that the Wolfpack model is the best way to think about dogs. And there are people that think it's absolutely like a parent-child relationship. I would say that the results of this paper align very well with the parent-child model, given that we know that oxytocin plays such a similar role in bonding between parents and their children.
1: I know there are a number of cultures where dogs aren't treated as members of the family. Do you think these results would hold true for them as well?
3: That's a great question because dogs are ubiquitous across human cultures. But as you note, the ways that people relate to dogs can differ quite a bit from culture to culture. So to the best of my knowledge, these oxytocin-related processes have been studied, in this case, in a Japanese population, and there's been some work in Western populations. But I think it's a really interesting and empirical question as to whether we would see these same kinds of relationships if we look at dogs in cultures that tend to treat their dogs differently than we do here.
1: And what is the next step in research? What are questions that need to be tackled in the future?
3: Well, to me, one of the really exciting possibilities is that some of the oxytocin-mediated processes described in this paper may actually represent some of the biological mechanisms that are involved in dog-related therapies. So, for example, today it's becoming prevalent to use assistance dogs, for example, in children with developmental disabilities such as autism or in soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder, but we really know very little about how these types of interventions work. If we look at the behavioral data from these kinds of interventions, a common theme is that people feel that they benefit through a sense of social connection and a sense of safety when they're with their dog, and that's something that very well may be related to oxytocin. And so I think it's interesting that for some of these conditions, specifically autism and post-traumatic stress disorder, scientists are using synthetic oxytocin as an experimental therapeutic. And if it turns out that there are benefits of administering oxytocin for some of these disabilities, using assistance dogs may actually be a fairly natural way to stimulate the system. So there may be some sort of medicinal properties of our interactions with dogs that we could use.
1: Thanks for speaking with me, Evan.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Evan McLean and colleagues write about the oxytocin-mediated bond between dogs and humans this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join.